Don't we have some good musicians? Let's, let's give them a hand. Uh, we've been blessed with the uh, music talent that's in this church, and, and I just thank them uh, each and every week for what they do and uh, the leadership that they've given to us, and, and I thank them for it. Uh, tonight we're welcoming Reverend John Porter back to us again tonight. He's doing his last sermon tonight, so I know it's going to be a good one. Uh, we pray, Father, that uh, the people out here will open their ears and their eyes and their hearts that they might hear the message and put it to practice. And we thank you, John, for what you've done this week. It's been a good series, and I'm, I'm just thankful for what you've done. And uh, I hate that your wife and children couldn't be here, but I understand why, and, and uh, I know you're thinking about them. Uh, but uh, we won't hold you up too long, and as soon as the choir is done, you can come on up and give us your, your blessing.
Thank you again, choir. And uh, I got to admit, tonight it's our last night, and uh, I'm gonna gonna miss you guys. You all have been uh, really great to me this week, and uh, and I appreciate that very much. And of course, had had great support from our Mahir and family as well. Thank you guys for that too. Uh, tonight, uh, I wanted to start off just a little bit different than we have each of the other nights. Because last night I shared a story. Um, where are you at with the flip? We, okay, you ready? Uh, last night I shared a story with you about uh, uh, Subaru. And I told you I had some pictures and, and I almost brought them last night but forgot them. And so I remembered them tonight and uh, I just wanted to show you this. Uh, this is Subaru. He, he's the one on the left. No, I'm kidding. No. Uh, he's the one on the right, of course. Uh, that's my wife Ashley on the left there, and and right behind we're in his office at the India Baptist Society, and right behind us is a, a map of India, um, and and India is divided up into states, uh, kind of like the United States, but their states are much much bigger, vast. There are many fewer, but they're much bigger. And this is the state of Karnataka. And uh, that's where uh, my missionary friends uh, that I told you about last night, John and Heidi, are their names, and they have two kids, and that's where they are. And actually, those numbers, that you, the uh, letters or numbers in the black ink you see written on there, that's actually the statistics uh, that I was sharing with you last night about how uh, 3,000 baptisms in the year prior to last year, last year was when we went, they had 3,000 baptisms, they saw 600 church planted, and remember I told you by the year 2025, they planned to uh, plant 50,000 churches in 34,000 villages throughout India. So, uh, so this is uh, uh, Subaru, and, and I also told you about a village that he went to and a little tin hut that he stayed in, and uh, we can look at that now. This is sort of what it looks like, uh, if you can imagine. So he lived in that for three years, and uh, that has holes in the roof, for those of you who were not here last night. This tin hut has holes in the roof, and when it rained, uh, the rain would fall through onto the dirt floor, and there were holes there, and scorpions lived in the holes, and the rainwater would cause the scorpions to come up out of the holes. And uh, he was afraid, and uh, he, he drew a circle. The first night that he experienced that, he drew a circle around himself, and he prayed that no scorpion would ever come inside of that circle and for those three years, when he was in that hut, he stayed inside that circle, and no scorpion ever came inside of that circle. So uh, uh, that's the story about Subaru. Now, the, we don't have to turn to the pictures just yet, but uh, the next couple of pictures I'm going to show you, uh, I actually wanted to include them in my sermon tonight, but I think uh, for the sake of me being able to flow more effectively, I'm just going to show you a couple of these pictures here at the beginning, and so when we read our text from Matthew chapter 11 in just a few minutes, uh, I, I want you to be able to picture uh, these scenes as we get there, okay? So uh, let's go ahead and flip to the next picture, and this is, uh, we're in Israel, this is me and my wife a few weeks ago, we were visiting Israel and touring the holy sites, and in just a moment we're going to talk about uh, uh, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the uh, Palm Sunday that he entered into the gate of the city the week before he was crucified and resurrected. And this picture that you're looking at right here is standing 
in the city of Jerusalem, or just outside the city wall actually, and looking at the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives in Israel. It's right outside the city gate of Jerusalem. And we can go to the next. And then if you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking out towards Jerusalem, this is one of the scenes that you will see. This is not actually Jerusalem. It's just the city itself is just a little bit to the right of this picture. And, and actually, large, mostly what you see in that picture there uh, are graveyard or grave sites. That is the largest and old, not largest, but the oldest graveyard, known cemetery in all of the world. There are graves in that cemetery that date back 3,000 years, and it's right there on the Mount of Olives. And uh, to the next picture, all right, there's Jerusalem. And you see that little gome, uh, golden dome there? That's the Temple Mount. That's where the original temple was at that Solomon had built. And uh, currently that's an Islamic mosque built on top of there now. It's really uh, strange how all, amazing history, how all that's come to pass. But nonetheless, that's uh, a panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. A uh, very small city. And let's back up to the picture right before that again. This picture is just to the left of that. And in our story that we're going to read here from Mark's Gospel in just a moment, uh, we're going to hear about Bethany and Bethphage. And these are two little towns right outside of Jerusalem that uh, were instrumental in Jesus' life as well. And, uh, and so what you're looking at there is actually more of Bethany, the little town of Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. And on around to the left, as you continue sort of following the curvature of the Mount of Olives, you'll come to Bethphage. Okay, so let's advance two slides now. And this is on the Mount of Olives, but more specifically, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the garden where Jesus went and prayed so often, particularly on that night that he was betrayed. And there it is. Uh, those, olive tree, those are olive trees that you see there. That's an olive grove. And uh, it was just a, a, a spectacular moment in my life to be able to go and and pray where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, next slide. As I told you a moment ago, we're going to be talking about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's what it's called. And this is part of the trail, the, the pathway that he would have taken off of the Mount of Olives down to uh, the valley that separates. It's a small, small little valley that separates uh, the hill that Jerusalem is on and the Mount of Olives, but this was a pathway down the Mount of Olives toward the city walls of Jerusalem. And the next. This would have been the gate that Jesus went through. This is called the Eastern Gate. That's the actual wall. Jerusalem is hidden behind a wall. That wall goes all the way around the city of Jerusalem. And this was the main gate. There's eight different gates to enter into the city of Jerusalem. And this was the main gate. It's called the East Gate. And... If you notice in that piece that's in the middle, there's a, a little, little archway there. It kind of looks uh, like an expanded M on the McDonald's sign about halfway down in that center column. Well, those, are, those, those were the original uh, pathway through that gate. And about 500 years ago, the Ottoman Empire, uh, they, they came in and, and uh, were able to do some very mischievous and evil things. And, and uh, they maneuvered themselves in there, and, and they just kind of had control here for a little while. And the leader of the Ottomans there, 
he, he had heard the prophecies about how the Messiah of the, of the Jews was going to come through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And he was like uh, many of the Jews. He was like uh, many of the other people of other religions that had heard something about Jesus or the Messiah and that he was going to be coming. And he was afraid of the Messiah coming in through the eastern gate. And so he had it concreted up. So now there's, I forget, I think it's like 14 feet of concrete through that eastern gate. In, and that's also called the Golden Gate. And, and so it's completely concreted now all the way through so that the Messiah could not get through it. But what they didn't know was that the Messiah had already gone through it. 1,500 years before he had went through it. They just didn't believe it. And so to the next slide. And then once Jesus got inside of the city... Uh, Anybody, not our people, they saw this, but anybody have any idea what this picture might be? It's obviously a stone that's uh, encapsulated inside of a, uh, a glass enclosure. But after Jesus got into the city, he spent a week inside of the city roughly, or coming in and out of the city and, and doing different things. But on the night that he was uh, betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the Roman soldiers, they carried him back into the city and... When, he was, uh, when it was confirmed that he was going to die, they, they strapped him to this stone. This is called the stone of flagellation. This would have been the stone that they strapped Jesus to when they beat him with the cat of nine tails, which is a whip that has nine leather straps with little pieces of metal strapped to the end of it or little fragments of sharpened bone so that when the leather catches the skin, it rips it, but then the bone fragments or the metal fragments tear the skin even deeper. And, uh, and I could get much more graphic with that, but I won't. But that's what this stone is. So when you think about uh, Jesus, as we come upon this Easter season, and, and maybe this will be a conversation or, or a study that your church will uh, become more of a part of, and when you get to that place where you talk about uh, Jesus being beaten before he even goes to the cross. This was the stone that he was beaten on. And the next picture. This is a rock. Uh, actually, this is the top of a rock. This is the top of Mount Calvary. This is the rock that the cross would have stood on. And Jesus' blood spilled on. It was a most humbling experience just to see it. You, you can't touch it. It's, it's encased as well. But uh, it, was, it was most moving to be there and experience that. This is the Rock of Mount Calvary. Is there any more, are there any more pictures? That might be the last. This is the last one. Okay, great. Would you turn in your Bible tonight to the Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word tonight as we read verses 1 through 11 in Mark chapter 11. Here the scripture says, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. See, there they are. You've seen them now. You know where they are, right? He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. 
Verse 4, so they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside of the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Will you pray with me? Father, as we study this word tonight, I pray that each one of us will see and will hear and will know only you here in this hour. Father, tear down every distraction. Remove every barrier. For any wall that's been erected in any of our lives that has kept us from seeing or hearing, you reaching out for us. May those walls be destroyed tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Here we are just a few days away from the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. That's actually what's happened. We're literally just a few days away from that in this part of the story. As well as are we just a few days away from our acknowledgement and celebration of that here this Easter season. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, all four of these Gospels record this account of Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem. It's a very public setting. It's one that is filled with both tensions as well as large expectations. It is a very dramatic scene that we are beginning to look at here tonight as it unfolds. This is the time of the Passover season in Jerusalem. And many people have come from outside of the city. They have come from far away because of the Passover feast and celebrations. And there are many scholars who estimate that there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 to 2.7 million people that had come in. That doesn't include the people who already lived there, which were not nearly that many. But greater than 2 million people are expected to have come into Jerusalem for this occasion, for this particular week. Now, by that, by that time, news about Jesus, words about Jesus have begun really spreading uh, far across the world, uh, which was the ancient world, uh, the U.S., you know, North America, South America. These places are not yet even known about. So when you say across the world during this time frame, we're actually referring to the Middle East, which was the ancient world. That was the only place that it's known that inhabitants or people really lived on the earth at that time. And so even the people, though, that are hearing about Jesus, that they don't believe the message about him, they don't believe the stories they're hearing, still they're very, very intrigued by what's being said about Jesus. And so there's lots and lots of people wondering, is Jesus going to come to the feast? Will Jesus be here during the week of Passover? 
And as our text just stated, yes, Jesus goes into the city of Jerusalem for this Passover week. But first, before he did that, he comes by way of Bethany and Bethphage. Now, these are two small suburbs or small, small towns just two or three miles outside of the holy city. And as I said from the pictures, they're just off of the Mount of Olives as well. But these are two very, very special places to Jesus. Uh, there really is a sweet, sweet place in his heart uh, for these two small little towns. Uh, Bethany, because that's where uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And, you know, they were great, great friends of Jesus. And that's, in fact, where Jesus went to raise Lazarus uh, once he had died. In addition, this Mount of Olives is an incredibly monumental place in Jesus' life and in his ministry as well. Uh, this is where Jesus gave what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is a, a sermon or, or great teaching from Jesus. It's where Jesus taught about the end of time, what it's going to look like, what's going to happen, kind of like what ta Paul talks about in 2 Timothy in chapter 3. Jesus talks about it a little bit different way. He gives a little bit uh, some, some more references to what the end of time is really going to look like there off of the Olivet Discourse. And in, uh, we see that in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. We see also from the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus is teaching from the Mount of Olives, parables like the ten virgins. And, and what a powerful message that is. Um, if you don't know, I, I encourage you to really study that parable of the ten virgins. Uh, I really just want to get into it right now, but, but I want to stay focused on on uh, the message at hand. Jesus also talks about the unfaithful servant in the Olivet Discourse. And then later on in this particular Holy Week, Passover week, the night before he was crucified, he had taken his disciples into that upper room. And, and you might recall, he had that last supper. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him into the garden. And remember, he told them to stay here and watch and pray while he goes a little further into the garden and praise to the Father. And this certainly seems to be a most fitting place for Jesus, the King, to begin his triumphant entry. And these, these places that he's been so well associated with and, and such tremendous things have really happened in each of these settings. And so it is that Jesus begins this journey, first of all, by calling a couple of his disciples to him while he's on the Mount of Olives and said, hey, I want you to go over to Bethphage and uh, find this very specific colt. Now, colt means it's the young one of a mature donkey. This also means, as Jesus also said, uh, this is an animal or an animal that has never been ridden. It's very common for people to ride on donkeys, but uh, not so much for people to ride on the colt of a donkey, a smaller one. But nonetheless, that's what Jesus requests. Now, this is important, actually, because this colt was actually about to be used for divine purposes. And things that are used for divine purpose are not to have been uh, adulterated in any other kind of way. They are to be pure. They are to be blameless. It's kind of like the sacrifice, the animal sacrifice that a person might bring to uh, give to God in terms of offering, it had to be an unblemished animal. You couldn't bring an animal that had a lame leg or there was some other defect. It had to be a whole and pure animal. Well, the same thing was true, I believe, in the case of this colt. This colt had to be unadulterated as well, which means nobody could have ever ridden on it. That was by design. 
Jesus planned all along to ride on the back of this small colt, this small donkey, and because it was intended for holy purposes, nobody was ever permitted to ride on that before. Although nobody else ever even knew that this colt was going to be used for a holy purpose, but God did. So God assured that that donkey or that colt was set aside for that purpose. Nobody ever rode, rode this colt before because this colt was meant to carry the king of kings. And it's worth noting also, I believe, about this colt, that because it had never been ridden before, that means it was never broken. And yet, it, by all appearances, seems that Jesus just got right on this colt's back and rode it like he had owned it all of its life, and he had ridden it many times before. Now, as Jesus makes his way into the city on this colt, what he's beginning to do is allowing those people who are watching him experience prophecy just unfold right before them. Because you see in the Old Testament, this prophet named Zechariah in chapter 9 and verse 9, he said this, he said, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. He's talking about Jerusalem or the people of God. That's what Zion is. He says, See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So, uh, the crowds began lining the street for this triumphant entry, and they're laying down their garments, and they're, they're putting down the palm branches alike for uh, the colt carrying Jesus to walk on like he's royalty. They're treating him like he's royalty, because these are ultimate acts symbolizing homage to him. And then they're singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is getting the respect of a king. These people like what they're seeing, at least to some degree, and they are, in essence, by their very own behavior, their actions, they're acknowledging that they believe that God has sent Jesus to save them. And so they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is a word that actually comes from this is a word they're using in the Greek. New Testament, we're talking about Greek language, but it's actually derived from the Hebrew, the Old Testament language. There's two words from the Hebrew language that makes up this word. The first is yasha, it means save, and the other one is na, and it means to pray or I pray. And so when the people are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I pray you save us. That's what they're crying out. Hosanna means, I pray you save us. And so this was a time of excitement for these people because they believed in that moment that Jesus was going to save them. And so there's a, a renewed pride amongst a, a large group of people in the Israelite setting. Now, they had been waiting 500 years since Zechariah had made this prophecy that I just read to you a moment ago. Zechariah 9.9. 500 years had transpired between the time he spoke that word and now that the Messiah has arrived. And their hope that Jesus would launch a new revolution, that's what they're thinking is going to happen. A new revolution is coming against the Romans and, and Jesus is going to just wipe them out and they're going to reestablish themselves and, and, in the holy city because right now, when this is going on, the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, which is God's city, it's under pagan rule. The Romans are pagans. They're far from God. Remember last night, I think I told you, that they were polytheists. They were not monotheistic. 
Mono being, they believed in one God. They believed in many gods. And so that's what's happening in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area as these pagans occupy the land. But still, truth be told, at least I suspect, that all of their loud hosannas probably didn't hide the fact that, that Jesus, to look at, probably wasn't what they expected in terms of their Messiah. I mean, he wasn't riding on the stallion, you know, like a triumphant king probably would have. He wasn't uh, riding in a chariot, you know, perhaps like a, a person of royalty would be. He was on a colt of a donkey that was probably just high enough off the ground that it just barely left Jesus' feet, maybe even dragging the ground. Doesn't look very much like a king, right, if you can picture that. Not to mention, he didn't have a conqueror's weapon in his hand. He didn't have a sword. He had the Word of God, which is mightier than a sword, but they didn't understand all that. They didn't get that. But he didn't have a sword in his hand. He didn't have a sling like David did to fight. He didn't have a shield. He didn't even have a saddle on this colt. All he had was a couple of people's garments just draped over the back of this little colt. And while many people were very enthusiastic about Jesus entering into the city, uh, they also knew that Jesus was going to encounter uh, great confrontation along the way, and they were anxious to see how Jesus was going to react, how he was going to deal with that when the confrontations came his way. And so it was just four days later after this happened. A lot of excitement that first day when Jesus is going into the city. A whole lot of excitement. But it's just four days later that Jesus was arrested in the garden. And he's put on trial. And that caused many people to lose hope. A great number had hoped four days earlier. But now Jesus is arrested and put on trial and many of them lose hope. And so it is just four days later that some of those same people who were crying out, Hosanna, I pray you save us now. Some of those same people are shouting, crucify him. The same people. They thought he was a fraud now. Four days ago, he was their hero. Now they said he's a lie. He's, he's a false prophet. He's a fraud. And so... The reason for that is, though, the reason why they felt that way, the reason why their attitudes changed, their minds changed, their reactions changed, is because Jesus didn't do what they thought he should do. And that's a problem for all of us. When we think that Jesus should do something that we think he should do. Kind of like we think Jesus exists for us rather than living in the truth that we exist for Him. But here's an ironic twist in all of this. These people, many of them stopped believing and, and they actually started hating Him because He wasn't who they thought He was. But here's the irony in that. He actually was who they thought He was. He really was. They just didn't see it because they didn't have the heart to trust Him. They really didn't believe after all. You see, they wanted a king who was powerful and who would put his might on display. One who was not going to back down from anything and no matter what came up against him, he was going to reign victorious 
over it. And now through the benefit of God's Word, us being able to look back on what's actually happened and to, to know the prophetic Word of God that is still to come about Christ's coming again when He will be on that stallion, mind you. And, and we have all of these eyewitness accounts of what happened in regard to the resurrection. More than 500 witnesses give account through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is tremendous. We know now that Jesus was everything they expected. And He was so much more. Now Jesus knew too Himself that when He entered into the city that day, that uh, not only was He going to face confrontation throughout the course of the next few days, but by the end of that week, Jesus knew that He was going to face His final confrontation as an earthly man. And yet, He entered the city gates anyway. Jesus was fully man at this point. Now, He did. He had the Spirit. So He did have power. But He was also fully man. And what that means is that He could have turned and walked away. He did not have to go and face that confrontation. He didn't have to go to the cross. But he entered the gates anyway because he was not afraid of his enemies. And he wasn't afraid of his enemies because he wasn't motivated by fear. He was motivated by love. His love for us, his love for you, drove him to go on with the program. You see, because... Jesus wasn't about to keep his heart focused on or his mind focused on the wills of men because people have all different kinds of ideas about, I mean, what if Jesus really tried to do what people wanted? He's going to have to try and do a thousand different things because nobody's going to really agree on anything. So Jesus did what was absolutely right and he stays focused on the will of God because it's perfect and it's right. And so he keeps his heart there. And so I want you to know about this, as I just spoke to you about his love, and that's, that's what drove him to the cross. That same love that brought him here to the earth in the first place, again, he didn't have to come at all, but because he loved, he did. And that same love that brought him here is the same love that consumed him with every stripe of the whip that went across his back when he was strapped to that rock, stone. It's the same love that carried him every step as he carried that cross member of the cross. Yes, he had to carry that beam down a long track. And we walked that track too. I didn't show you any pictures of that tonight. But we walked that track that Jesus walked with that cross beam. And we saw those locations along the way where Jesus fell. And even on one occasion when he wasn't able to get back up and someone else had to come and help him and carried that part of the cross some ways for him. But it was, it was that same love for you and I that brought him out of heaven to begin with that carried him through the beating at the stone of flagellation. That gave him the motivation to keep going even when he had no strength at all to keep walking, to walk himself on to Mount Calvary to begin with. And it was that same love that with the strike of every nail through his hands, through his feet, that caused him to take it. Because at any moment, he could have called out to his legions of angels 
and they could have come down and just wiped everybody off the board. He could have ended it all right there for everything and everyone. But he didn't because he loves. Because he really cares for us. And so it was that same power that Jesus used to calm the storm. I believe it was the same power he used to tame that little colt. So it didn't buck, it didn't kick, it didn't try to throw him off. And that same power he used to raise Lazarus from the dead is the same power he used to bring himself back to life after death. You see, Jesus himself, he went into the depths of hell and he came back victorious. He was then and he is now. He's an unchanging God. He's undaunted and he is undefeated. He is magnificent in every way and he is the keeper of his promises. And he said he would be raised from the dead and he was three days later. He said he will return and he will come again. When that day is, no one knows. But he's promised it and his promises are sure. And he said for those that will trust him and follow him, he will take them to be with him forever. He said that in John 14. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so I can receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. You see, Jesus wants you with him. But he gives us the choice. It is absolutely your decision whether or not you go to be with him in that place that he's prepared for those that love him. Many of the people lined the streets that Palm Sunday and they gave Jesus a king's welcome into the city crying out in what appeared in that moment to be belief in him, Hosanna, hoping, believing he's going to save them. But only God really knows how many of those people who cried that out really wanted him to be their king. Only God knows if they really wanted him to be their king or if they were only looking for a savior. You understand there's a difference in having Jesus as your savior and having Jesus as your king. You see, some people only want a Savior. But Jesus will not be your Savior unless He is first your King. He cannot, He will not. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves tonight. This message, you know, a lot of sermons are, are, are two, three to five point sermons. Most of them are about three points. This is a one point sermon. And the point is, it's all wrapped up in that question. Are you one who has treated Jesus only as a Savior and not as a King? What that means is that we want Him to forgive us of our sin. Who doesn't want to be forgiven of their sin? We, we all want that. But we don't want to turn from our sin. We say so often, don't we? Father, forgive us, forgive me. But do you mean it? 
Father, I've neglected your word. Forgive me. But do you mean it? Does it change you? Because repentance isn't about asking for forgiveness. Repentance is about turning away from your sin. So just to verbally say, God, forgive me, that's not doing anything for you. And God knows whether you mean it or not. Because if you mean it, it means you're going to turn away from that sin. We want God to welcome us into heaven, but we don't want Him to interfere with our lives here and now. That's what it means to only want a Savior. You want Him to forgive you, but you don't want to turn away from your sin. And you want to get to heaven, but you don't want God to interfere with your life while you're here now. Do you see why Jesus can't be your Savior if He's not first your King? Friends, you need to know that Jesus came to die for your sin, not just to be your Savior. He died for your sin so that you would follow Him, so that He would reign over your life, that you would be submissive to Him. And I wonder if, if any of us here have turned our backs on Jesus in this kind of way. Have we, have we prayed something to Jesus and, and then we got angry? Or like I told you about the man last night who just renounced his faith altogether because his father had passed away when he said he had been praying all along that God would heal his father. How about you? Have you prayed for something and, and Jesus didn't respond in a way you expected? And so maybe you didn't renounce your faith, but you just went on hiatus in terms of walking faithfully with Him. Or maybe we've doubted and we've turned to Him just like the crowd did. Turned on Him just like the crowd did. One day you're, you're praising Jesus. Thank you for saving me, but the, the next day you're, you're living like you are nothing but in love with the world. Because for some reason Jesus didn't meet your expectations. And so you decided Jesus isn't for you after all. How many of us only approach God in prayer when we want something or when we feel like we need something versus those that would go to God in prayer just to say, thank you, God, for being merciful to me and, and help me to see clearly your path for me to travel? I mean, really, what's your prayer life like? Because I can tell you that even studies have shown through surveys, at least, that's been presented that many people who claim to be God-believers, Christ-fearers, that still when they pray, they just pray about selfish things. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, they asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And some of you may have been at the men's Bible conference over at Potocasey some weeks ago. I actually preached on that. Jesus gives a very specific outline on how to do that. So you look at that in Matthew chapter 6. And you study that to see how you are to pray. Again, we don't have time uh, for all of that tonight. Although, again, I would love to teach that too. But how many of us have chosen not to do what God has commanded His children to do? Remember, we're talking about those that that only want a Savior, 
compared to those who, who really want a king who is their savior? How many of us have chosen to not do what God commands His children to do in His Word? Because, one, we might think it's too difficult. We don't think we're equipped. We don't think we have what it takes. And so we just don't even attempt to do what God has told us to do anyway. Or is it that we would choose not to do the things that God commands? That's an operative word here, key for us, commands. Not advise, God doesn't advise us to do that. God doesn't encourage us to do that. God doesn't say, hey, it'd be great if you would go and do this. God commands His people do this. To live a certain way. That would bring glory to Him in our lives. But, but how many of us, we just don't do it because it interferes with what we really want to do. The truth is, we've just got our own agenda, we've got our own plans, and again, we just don't want God messing with that. But we still want to say, hey, we've got a place in heaven. God's got a nice little mansion for me on the street of gold, but I'm just going to keep doing whatever I want to here, ignoring all of God's word and what he has commanded me to do. Friends, it's obedience to God's word that brings blessing into life. And our trust toward God must far outweigh our expectations of God. Because God does not think like you do. And you should thank Him for that. You should be grateful of that. Because if this world was really ran by the way that you think, you think it's bad now, you can't imagine how much worse it would be if this world really operated in the way that you think it should operate. So be grateful that God does things His way. Because His way is pure. His way is righteous and holy. And so be thankful that God doesn't think like you. Although God does know how you think, and He knows what you think, and He knows why you think it. He knows your motivations. And He knows why you come to Him and you only ask Him for things you want when you pray, rather than asking Him that He would show you His will and that you would be faithful and obedient to fulfill His will for your life. But God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah has a, a great word to say about that in Isaiah chapter 55. In fact, he says that God's ways are higher than our ways. That God's thoughts are not our thoughts, but God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher you know what higher means in that instance? It means better. And it's not just a little bit better. It is eternally better. It's as far as the east is from the west better than our way of thinking and our way of doing things. And so now again, the great question for us tonight is this. Do you treat Jesus as though He is only a Savior to you? Or do you respect and serve Him as your King? Your King that you will trade nothing for, that you will give nothing up for. And your King that you will trust with everything, regardless of what your personal expectations are. Which one is He to you?
Because we've called this week a a series of revival meetings, and the hope is that there would be a reviving of the people of this congregation, of this this group that comes together and says, hey, we are part of the family of God. But as I told you on the first night that we met, the reason why churches pursue revival is because they recognize that there's something missing. There's, There's a great gap between them and God. And you know, something's not right. They recognize that. And so they come back to God saying, Lord, we, we recognize that something is, is off here. And we're praying for you to show us what it is. And how do we get on track? How do we move into the future and be that which is faithful to you? And friends, tonight what I'm saying to you is, is revival cannot take place. It will not take place if Jesus is not first your king. If you've been living personally or your home is operating or if this church is operating as though Jesus is only Savior but not King, there's not going to be a reviving. However, if you will make Jesus your King first, if you will submit to His authority first, He will be your Savior. Because when you submit to Jesus as your king, then you can go back to Sunday night after you recognize Jesus as king, and then you can begin to make every effort to grow in your knowledge of him. And then like we talked about on the next night, you can begin to really write the word of God on your heart that you would not sin against God. And then like we talked about the next night, then you can reconcile in those relationships that are broken in your life. And then you can come together and you can really unify and move forward in a congregation of love for each other and love for people who are far from God, even though they may hate you because you want to share the gospel with them. And then as we talked about last night, only after Jesus is your king who saves you can you go and make disciples who will then honor him as king of their lives too. But none of that's possible. The church cannot succeed. The people of a local body, the people of Conway Baptist Church, they cannot succeed in this if Jesus is not first king and you are bowing down to him in total surrender and submission. Would you allow me the privilege of praying for you one more time before I leave you all tonight? Let's pray. Father, I've thought about it many times, and tonight it's become more and more clear to me of the richness of your word and how deep you speak into our lives when we listen to you from your word. And Father, tonight we're reminded of of something that is of the utmost importance because tonight what we're really talking about is a matter of salvation, spending eternity with you, and being eternally separated from you. Lord, so many people have Satan been able to deceive. And, And that's no secret, Father. It began all the way back in the garden. He's been deceiving ever since. Because he knows how to play on our emotions. He knows that we want to ultimately be our own gods and live our own lives. 
And so he's put everything in front of us that, that would tempt us along those lines, and, and many of us have fallen for it. And, and just with half of our mind and heart, we want to say we love Jesus, but with the other half, we want to, we want to love the world, and we want to live in the world, and we want to enjoy the world. But God, you've told us that we must make the sacrifice and we must die to ourselves, and we must die to the world. So Father, I pray that tonight that no one leaves here being deceived about what it means to actually be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. Because it means not saying Jesus is my Savior. It means proclaiming and living under the authority of Jesus, my King. So, Father, if there are those here who maybe they've, they've made a profession of faith, maybe they've even been baptized, maybe they're 80 years old and been in the church for all of their life. But tonight, Father, if they have only been claiming Jesus as their Savior, I pray that you would awaken them to know that they are far from you. And that their soul is not secure because it really means that they've been living their own life. They've not submitted to you and your word and your authority. And they don't truly know your power to overcome sin. And to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life. So Father, I pray you shake us tonight. You stir us to desire salvation. To come shouting Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, save us now. Because we know you are the mighty king. And we give ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that that will be a fire that's lit across this church and, and this community. And that indeed, Father, this will be a lighthouse for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, as we have a moment of invitation, uh, you are exhorted by me, urged by me, that if you recognize tonight that the truth is you've not been who you thought you were in Christ, that you would give him yourself tonight. That you would forget about everyone else in this room. Because it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you if God is thinking something about you that is going to lead to your own demise, your ruin. Tonight, friends, I pray that we could all leave here secure, in the hand of God, knowing that we are living by faith in the Son of God, desiring to honor the Lord with our lives. And if we will do that, this church will not have just been through a series of revival meetings this week, but this church, this congregation, your homes, and you specifically, will experience the reviving that will catapult you into the days ahead. Amen. So would you stand as we sing this song? And if you need to come...
Come in humility. Humble yourself tonight. Die to your pride. Die to selfish ways so that you can glorify Christ and live for Him forevermore. I was muted. I, uh, I thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come and share this week with you all. Uh, you've been very kind and, and thoughtful towards me, and uh, I know you wanted to include my family more, and, uh, and I wish they could have too, but uh, life's just taken us in a little different direction this week. But I, I thank you for, again, your hospitality, and I want you to know that myself and uh, your sister church, Meharin, that, that we want to support you. Uh, going into the future as well. Uh, certainly, even as a part of the association, and I know Brother Terry and, and Greta, they echo this too. We all want to see you succeed, but we want you to know what the right understanding of success is too. We want you to be led by the Spirit of God to godly success. And that doesn't mean that, uh, and I, I've tried to uh, lead this way at Meharin too, it doesn't mean that we have to blow the doors open with numbers increasing it begins by making strong disciples where we are so we have to strengthen each other first and when we're truly faithful to god 
then he will do the pouring out of blessings and we will see the increase. But you have to start with you first. And don't think you've got it right just yet. You make sure that God has shown you that you have it right. Don't assume you've got it figured out or you're doing everything right. You make sure it's the Spirit of God that has convinced you of that. And if the Spirit of God has not convinced you that you're doing it God's way, then you get on your knees and you let your heart break and you let your your cries just be heard as your tears fall. Let them fall on God's feet at His throne as you submit yourself because without submitting to Him, you're never going to get it right. So may you take that as a word of encouragement and uh, we'll hope to hear greater things from uh, Conway Baptist Church in the near future. Amen? Amen. Anything before we go tonight? That's a great reminder. Thanks, Con. And uh, Miss Ruth Ann, would you take care of putting that on Facebook for us at Meher and so all of our folks get it too? All right. All right. Hey, it's been great to be with you this week. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we end tonight, may the joy of our salvation thrill us and excite us to the degree that what's in us filling us overflows and affects those around us, beginning at home. Father, may we be serious about honoring you. Whether we live by ourselves or whether we have a spouse or even children or grandkids alike living in our homes, may every person associated with us experience only the joy that we have in serving Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good night, everyone.